So one of our $20 patrons was at my show yesterday, right? And she came up to me. She had her tote bag, her I'd buy that tote bag, and was like, you know, I was with you on that Godly and Cream episode, and I just wanted to high-five her, like, right out of the gate. And then she (laughs) tilted her head and looked at me and said, in fact, I'd say I'm not in love (laughs) Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, bassist in the incredible Zither Band, percussionist for the exceptional Mellotron Brigade, and roadie for the astounding Auto Harp Society. <laughs> You're a busy man. Yep, I wear many hats, you know. Wide range of interests. <laughs> I thought you were going to work the incredible bongo band into there. You know, I don't want to talk about them ever again. <laughs> oh. Wow. Just going to leave it at that. <laughs> I don't know if there's a precedent set for that comment on the podcast, nor in our friendship, but... And I will not explain it, but do not ever bring that band up around me again. <laughs> well, duly noted. <laughs> I'm co-host Jeremy, and I'm uh, much lazier with my title, so I'm just going to say that I'm Jeremy Twizzler's Pull and Peel Ruggles. (laughs) As you are known. Yeah. You have uh, a lot of nicknames. I, people love giving me nicknames. I don't know, it's it's what it is. (laughs) Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I know that both of you fellas are big fans of the sketch comedy series I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. Mm-hmm. Which they just released a third season. So good. Have you guys burned through it already? Absolutely. I haven't. Well, I couldn't even make it through the first season of that show, guys. I found it to be unwatchable. Okay. <laughs> well, I told I've, you guys have already been informed. For our listeners, I've already told this to to co-host Sean and Jeremy that I just I couldn't get into it. It was not my thing. In fact, I couldn't think of it was just one of the least enjoyable things I had ever experienced. And Sean said, "Man, this is bound to become your favorite show. You hate it too much." It's true. I'm and, calling it. I'm waiting for the day when I get that text from Peter. He was like, you know what? You were right. Tim Robinson is the voice of our generation. (laughs) The thing is, as much as it's hard for me to see how that could happen from here, Sean, I think that you might be right. And I think that ties into the band that we're here to talk about today. Who is it, Jeremy? Oh, is that how you started with Incredible String Band, Peter? Yes, yeah, yeah, I, I can I can just say this out the gate before we even introduce this album. When I first checked out this band, somewhere around 2009 or so, I'd heard their name here and there. I didn't know anything about them. I was in a music store and put on a copy of the 1971 release. Actually, it preceded the album that we're going to talk about today by about seven months or so. It was the album was Be Glad for the Song Has No Ending. And I sat there and I hated it. It was so not my thing. Everything about this band I, I just thought of it as one of the worst experiences ever checking out a new a band for the first time that I had ever encountered. But as time went by, something drew me back to it. Probably because of the strong reaction <laughs> that I had to their music, and 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 it, you know the second time I went and checked them out, it was a different album. I believe it was We Tam and the, the Big Huge was the next album I tried, and it still was just I couldn't wrap my head around what they were doing. But I just kept coming back for more. And one day, 
I saw the light. <laughs> and I love the incredible string band now. I, I don't know if I, I would probably be hyperbole to say that they're one of my favorite bands because I, I didn't have the album that we're talking about today, Jeremy. <laughs> I don't have their entire catalog, but I have a lot of their albums. Some albums I know better than others, but with time, there's just there's no one else like the Incredible String Band. Their their whole unique universe. Yeah. So uh, it's it's cool to. I'm glad you brought one that I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, Peter won't admit this on Mike, but he was pissed that I took this band from him. <laughs> And it's uh, it's especially funny because it's something like I was like, wow, that's kind of a cool thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you, it would be a daunting task for me to try to you know compact everything about this band into one episode. Plus, all the albums that I, the reason I didn't feature them previously is because all the albums that I have are a little more expensive. They usually go for ten to twenty dollars. You found the cheapie. Yeah, this is pretty much the cheapie in their catalog because it's the best-selling album of theirs and it's kind of their last hurrah which we'll get into later but it's outside of their golden era i would say yeah and what is the title of this one (laughs) the title (laughs) is liquid acrobat as regards the air it feels like they stole that album title from Godly and Cream. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> I cannot uh, argue against you on that. It's pretty goofy. <laughs> and this band has some some goofiness to it. but Yeah, whimsy. Yeah, whimsy is a better word. They're not trying to be humorous almost ever, I'd say. But No. It, it, well, yeah, that's one of the things that I'm not like a fantasy or like folklore really that's not really my thing and they lean heavy in that direction to do but before we go any further let's play a song i want to start with their second song on the album dear old battlefield because the first song's just a little too renfair for me <laughs> yeah understandable they get they they get that way sometimes, but I don't think they're they're not quite as traditional in the way they they do things as a lot of the other bands that you would categorize as Renfair. Yeah, and but there's a precedent for why that's in their sound though, and we'll get to that after we hear this track. Dear old Battlefield, side A, track two. And this album came out in October 1971. Seeing his own role replayed Looking in the world like a broken mirror Seeing his old face displayed They come and go, come and go Why'd you advertise goodbye? Living a lie will lay you low What can I tell you? What can I sell you? But the truth will make you high Fast and 
That is definitely a Robin Williamson song. Accurate. His vo- there's no mistaking his voice. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, a big distinction, but we'll talk about that stuff later, too. Yeah. Well, what's also really jumped out at me hearing that is just how driving that track is. That's not the case for a lot of their earlier music. Yeah, I thought this album, beyond being the only one we could actually feature on the show, I think it's a good one because it's a lot more accessible than a lot of their other material Mm -hmm. that gets very out there, like parts don't repeat a lot. It's just... It's pretty hard for a lot of people to stomach at first, as you mentioned with your experience with it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of they have a lot of long-winded, rambling narrative songs that go on for ten plus minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy, do you have any bands that you had a similar experience with, where you just hated it so much at first that you kept coming back to it until it clicked for you? Hmm. One, I would say that was similar and has some pretty similar elements actually is the band of Montreal. When I first heard them, I was like, nah, not for me too quirky too, like being weird for the sake of being weird. But eventually it, uh, the songwriting's good and it's pretty hard to deny. So that's the first one I can think of off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That one makes sense. Sean, how about you? Uh, the one I always, think about where i had like the the strongest experience like that was the band sonic youth and mm. this was like late high school getting into the bands everybody was talking about checking out all these supposedly legendary alternative bands and i got a cd copy of daydream nation and it was just like i don't get it this is boring and not good but it just bothered me how much I didn't like it. I kept going back until they eventually became like one of my absolute favorite bands of my twenties. Yeah. You're probably not alone in that experience with Sonic youth. Yeah. And, and, so, and for some people I know as, as long and hard as they try with Sonic youth, they still can just, they never get it. And I'm sure that that's probably could be the case with the incredible string band as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that everyone is going to have my experience, <laughs> I can't blame them. And and how much work do you want to put into liking something that you don't like? Yeah. (laughs) It's not like I had a ton of people, unlike with the uh, aforementioned, I think you should leave where I have tons of people telling me how great it is. I did not have a lot of people telling me they loved the incredible string band. Oh, weird. I I, I don't know what, I didn't live in the UK in the 1970s. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah. Uh, which I feel like most incredible string band fans have long since accepted that they're just going to have a lot of people that will never appreciate that thing with them. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it becomes one of those, Oh, you're, you're in the club kind of things like, Oh <laughs> yeah. And it's not like, Oh, you don't like him. Let me explain to you why you should. It's just like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it, it I, I will say, Jeremy, I was shocked and removed when you said that this was going to be your selection before I could even get angry. I was, I was, I was too surprised to get angry that you stole my band. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Because this, this is, although, as I mentioned, they're not, they don't sound like a lot of other medieval folk rock bands or Ren Fair, as you call it bands, but it's decidedly in leaning in that direction. Yeah. And the whimsy of a lot of their early work is like a little much for me, a little too rambling. So I actually kind of like this more than a lot of their more celebrated works. Yeah. Yeah. Most people are going to talk about the hangman's beautiful daughter and we Tam and the big huge, which has really good songs on it. I'd Mm -hmm. say for me, it's like there's some amazing songs on the first like four albums have like really bright spots and then other things that I don't want to listen to. (laughs) Yeah. It was actually a compilation of their work relics that it came out in the middle of their career. It's a double LP sort of a, a best of that was really a big turning point for me, putting that on and, and hearing the highlights from their catalog that that was a big turning point getting that and, 
putting that on when my wife and I would be making dinner, put that on. It's a nice long album to make dinner, eat dinner, and, and just enjoy the whimsy of the incredible string band. Yeah. Well, shall I introduce the band to you guys? Oh, mm-hmm. please do. Even though I, they need no introduction for Peter, but for everyone else, we'll start uh, in 19... Let's go back to 1963 with singer-guitarist Robin Williamson, who is living with Burt Janch at the time. Wow. Yeah. Leader of Pentangle and celebrated solo artist as well. Yeah. And they're playing the folk circuit, and that's where Robin Williamson meets Clive Palmer, a very skilled banjo player, and they start playing as a duo they're doing a lot of like irish and scottish traditional music which explains a lot of the ren fair sound going on they're into that stuff traditional music and kind of in that same vein as you mentioned of like pentangle or fairport convention maybe yeah which all of that's just sort of getting started around the the mid 60s yeah yeah so they're doing their thing And they decide to add a third member, Mike Heron, who is a guitarist. He was brought on to be the rhythm guitarist. And they form officially the Incredible String Band between the three of them. Before Mike joined that band, he was playing kind of pop music and rock music uh, around Scotland and... So that kind of explains this tension that would sort of form because he's from a different musical background. Uh, Robin actually started doing jazz music before he got into like traditional and bluegrass music. And they were both friends with Clive, but they weren't really friends with each other. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that Clive was the connecting point between the two of them and and uh, he's not in the picture for too long. <laughs> yeah. So Clive, uh, he ran a like late night folk club in Glasgow called Clive's Incredible Folk Club. That was like it was just a room, uh, like on the fourth floor above a department store, and there was only an elevator to get there. And they would like start shows at midnight, so they didn't disrupt the businesses or whatever and of course that got shut down as a fire hazard because there's only an elevator to it and out of it but it was uh, pretty successful in that scene for a while and the incredible string band was kind of the house band for that place so they get signed to Electra Records and put out their first album the self-titled Incredible String Band album as a trio in 1966. And that album is a lot more traditional than the rest of their output. And it's it was like mostly first takes. I think they were told they need to keep the budget under 150 pounds. <laughs> shoestring. Yeah. Incred- incred- not an incredible string budget, a shoestring budget. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just acquired that album within the last year. I've listened to it a couple times, so I'm still getting familiar with that one. But it was very different yeah. from, from what would come later. And yeah, it's I wasn't really familiar with their sound, including Clive in the band, which, boy, I'm, apparently I'm anxious to kick him out because I keep mentioning <laughs> it. Well, we'll kick him out then. After the first album comes out, Clive leaves down what I guess is called the hippie trail which is just like westerners going to Kathmandu and places like that in India and Pakistan to like experience other cultures and he just doesn't want to join the band anymore after that it just goes off down I believe a solo career path from there yeah because He said later that, you know, he liked the traditional music stuff and 
both Robin and Mike were wanting to go more in the psychedelic direction of others in that scene, and he just wasn't on board with it. So he leaves, and he is, of course, the kind of fulcrum, you know, because Mike and Robin are both friends with him, but now he's gone. So there's like pretty immediately just kind of tension and both Mike and Robin, you know, they write their own songs and they're not co-writing with each other. It's just like, this one's my song. This song's your song. And most of their albums are split up like half and half ish of, you know, who's doing which songs. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a Lennon McCartney partnership that they have going on. No. I, I believe the band actually temporarily broke up after Clive left and then they just ended up getting back together. Yeah. Yeah, I guess Robin went to Morocco and met a lady or he was with a lady when he left there who comes into the story. Well, we'll just bring her into the story right now. Why not? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, so when they get back together, Robin says, hey... My girlfriend, Licorice McKechnie, is in the band now. She's <laughs> she's going to be playing with us. Yes, the beloved Christina Licorice, or Licky McKechnie. And immediately, Mike was not comfortable with this. Not for the, like, you know, seemingly obvious reasons of someone just being like, hey, she's in the band now. He felt outnumbered. <laughs> so he went home bought a bass guitar and handed it to his girlfriend <laughs> who was Would that be Rose Simpson? Yeah, Rose Simpson and said, "Hey, you're going to learn this and you're in the band now as well." <laughs> Cuz he didn't want to be outnumbered. He wanted Yeah. And, uh, and thus was born the classic lineup of the Incredible String Band. Yeah. So, I now want to feature a song called Cosmic Boy that features Licorice as the lead singer. Awesome. Yeah. I like this song a lot. It's a great one. I, I love anytime Licky sings. Yeah, she has a super unique voice, as you're right about to hear on Side A, Track 3, Cosmic Boy. So that's Licky and super unique voice. Uh, that song's really stripped down, I would say, compared to a lot of incredible string band material. And yeah, it's a cool song. 
Yeah, and she is co-writer on that along with Mike Heron. They did record some Licky originals throughout the time she was in the band. Yep. and Not a direct comparison, but something about that song and the uniqueness of the vocal delivery reminded me a little bit of Nico, especially from like the, you know, the Velvet Underground and Nico record. Oh, that's interesting because I thought it reminded Mo Tucker. Me, yeah, it reminded me of Mo Tucker. <laughs> yeah, like after sure, hours. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's funny. Yeah, could could hear both of those. So, kind of to pick up where we left off, Mike and Robin, sort of the uh, primary songwriters, and they're button heads. And I, I had heard, I watched like some Scottish special on the band or something. And they would like, like Robin would write a song and Mike would be like, I'm going to put a super sick sitar part on it. Not because he wanted the song to be good, but because he wanted his sitar part to be the more memorable thing than mm-hmm. than Robin's song. Yep. Yep. That's, it, it wasn't like they were trying to compliment each other's songwriting so much as walk all over it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, a weird dynamic in, I, in a strange way i i think it works for the band (laughs) (laughs) it kind of does but yeah it's like a competitive like conflict driven sort of thing that really kind of goes against the sound you're hearing too (laughs) you think of it as kind of this utopian yeah yeah. sort of hippie communal thing or whatever and yeah yeah you you see footage of this band you you think they're all just flower children peace and love but yeah it seems that was not really the the vibe no, especially by the time this album comes out, but we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so we've kicked Clive out. So I've, I've already gotten to the part that I apparently was itching to get to. Yeah, <laughs> They kick Clive out and then begins kind of their like their golden era, I guess, of being like the hippie band. Yeah. It's, yeah. In the, in the UK, they were the hippie band and, and they were you know, at least... I don't know how much they were selling to the general public, but other bands were listening to them. Yeah. It seemed like they kind of had almost a cult underground air about them, even though they were charting and stuff. Like, yeah. They weren't actually a secret, but they were kind of too weird to be mainstream as well, though. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get the impression that they were getting played on the, the radio, at least not mainstream radio. So they put out uh, 5,000 Spirits or Layers of the Onion. Yeah. And catchy title. Catchy little title. The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, We Tam and the Big Huge, which is the double record you mentioned. Yeah. And then uh, Changing Horses, which is kind of where things start to change within the band, I'd say. Yeah, that's actually the first album that I don't have of that run of albums. I, I don't I'm not familiar with Changing Horses. Yeah. So that comes out in nineteen sixty nine, which is the same year they get invited to play Woodstock. Yeah. Yeah. And they were there. They 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 did play. They did play. Nobody remembers it. Nope. Not in any of the films. No, and they were supposed to play Friday night the first night when it and then it rained. And they didn't want to play in the rain, so Melanie went on instead, brought the house down, (laughs) wrote a big song about it, lay down candles in the rain, huge moment, Melanie's career takes off, incredible string band opts to play the following day in the late afternoon, early evening, right in between the Keith Hartley band and Canned Heat, these two electric blues type acts and Santana's already gone on and blown people's minds at this point. And they go on, do this whimsical, mostly acoustic set, the four of them up there in these white cult like uniforms and people just kind of scratch their heads and went, huh? Yeah. (laughs) And it was filmed, but it's not been used in any of the Woodstock films. Yeah. I guess it didn't go over well. Apparently, Friday night was supposed to be like the folkier acts, but they were like, well, we use these electronic things and we don't want to get electrocuted (laughs) using them in the rain, which kind of makes sense. But then they got put with these like electric rock bands, so they just seemed out of place and 
kind of like a downer in the middle of people trying to get their energy up. Which is funny because they were probably the hippiest of, of bands there yeah. at Woodstock. But it yeah, it just did not match the vibe of, of that day. And yeah, no one remembers that they were there. They and it didn't help them that if anyone did know their music, I don't believe any of the songs that they performed had yet been released at that point. They were all on future albums. So if if you happen to have, you know, in the U.S., I can't imagine too many people had copies of the Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, or We Tam, and the Big Huge. But uh, if you did, you'd you'd be waiting to hear <laughs> those songs, and they didn't play them. And nope, because <laughs> also. In 1968, a little before this, they all get into Scientology. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, from what I was reading, both Robin and Mike decide to stop doing drugs, which, you know, I'm sure they can make good music still, but uh, it's clearly drug-influenced music that they were putting out. But they also, like, the... Sh- there's a shift in the band at this point where they're like holding weekly meetings about their finances and they're spending a bunch of money on the Scientology courses. And this, there's just this shift away from the music and towards like the finances and getting really into the different aspects of Scientology. Yeah. I heard an interview from just a few years ago with, Rose Simpson, the bassist, and she said that when Scientology came in, that's when everything changed not for the better. Yeah, and it started to reflect in their albums. Their albums, you know, they got a little cleaner, a little less inspired, or maybe just farther out. It just wasn't, whatever that magic was they had didn't seem to be clicking anymore, and... I mean, this is also at the time that the hippie era is kind of ending and they are the hippie band. So they're kind of getting washed out, culturally speaking. Starting about 1971, both Robin and Mike are recording solo albums separate from Incredible String Band. So you can kind of see they already have an eye out the door on it. But they did manage to get this one kind of last hurrah of an album together which captures a lot of their earlier influences and mixes it with things that are a little more modern, almost proggy at times, I would say, on this album. Just to be clear to our listeners, this is not the final incredible string band album. No, this is the last, I would say, critically acclaimed one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they did put out a few more after this, and I have Earthspan, which was one year after this in October of 1972. And yeah, it it does feel like the inspiration has left the band on that album. I, I think I've listened to it once or twice in the years that I've owned it and it has not grabbed me. Yeah. And from the uh, special that I watched, it sounded like they were bringing in, more people into the band and session players and were kind of becoming more like democratic in a way. Like it wasn't the vision of Mike or Robin or Licky. It was this kind of like muddled vision that felt uninspired. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I feel like they went well past their expiration date (laughs) and it's curious that they held on as long as they did considering that Robin and Mike yeah, as you said, I guess the, in a way they had that almost the way that like in the villains and the heroes almost play off each other and that's the, their driving force. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems they had that kind of dynamic. So maybe they were afraid to totally sever that from their creativity. Yeah. So let's play another song now before we fully hit the end of their story. They break up in 1974 as a band. But we will play Worlds They Rise and Fall next. Which is a Mike Heron song. You will hear his voice. Side A, track four. Worlds they rise and fall. 
they rise and fall Within her eyes She gives the eagle wings To fly her skies Upon her I think it's those textures that they tend to introduce as these songs unfold. Like you heard in that piece, they're one of the things that really started to change my mind about this band. Like the varied instrumentation or like the arrangement or both? Yeah, the unexpected sounds coming in and out of the arrangement Yeah, throughout. Yeah, it's got layers. It's... uh... The arrangements are interesting, but like on this record, not too far out to where it's distracting, I guess. Yeah, I feel like by this point, the guys are stepping on each other's songs a little less than they were on earlier records, almost in service of the original vision of the song, even. And it's it's enjoyable. The The songs are still interesting, but... They require a little less work on the listener's part. Yeah. <laughs> Which, it, it, it can be a, a, a challenge. I, I have their double album, You. That thing is hard to get through. And, and it's good, but <laughs> to sit through four sides of the, them at, at that stage, it's a challenge. <laughs> it's big ass. Peter, do you yeah. have a favorite Incredible String Band record? I don't know if you've said that on the episode yet. Without a doubt, The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter. And I uh, think that's, uh, by and large, considered by many to be the best. I, I had a regular customer at uh, the record store back in Kalamazoo that he was a huge, incredible string band fan and always told me that The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter was their best record. And he was also a huge death metal fan. So I get all my folk and death metal <laughs> recommendations from this guy. Yeah, they're one of those bands that I could see a death metal or black metal fan getting into because sometimes those genres suddenly go psychedelic or folky. <laughs> yeah, true. It, they don't feel too far removed. And I'm sure that, especially in the UK, I'm sure that they've been a big influence, you know, and just in general in Europe, I'm sure they were a big influence on a lot of yeah metal and things along those lines, just psychedelic, darker music. Well, I did want to mention the lineup on this album because it is a little different. I should have mentioned probably earlier, but... <laughs> yeah, there's someone we haven't even mentioned who's part of the band at this point. Yeah. Because Rose is gone. Rose left right before this album to start a family, and both Rose and Licky, they stopped 
dating Robin and Mike in like 1969, but they were still in the band and they were just part of the band. But Rose leaves and they bring on Malcolm Lamistere. Lamistere? I have no idea how to pronounce his name. Le Maestre. It's probably French and there's probably letters that we're not supposed to be be pronouncing in there but yeah I, I tried and i could not find how to say his name so we're malcolm we'll call him malcolm we'll call him malcolm and yeah so he replaces rose and robin mike licky and malcolm are all playing like a stupid amount of instruments that i'm not gonna list yeah because it's like 10 to 15 different things for each of each them. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they did bring on uh, Jerry Conway to play drums on a couple tracks. He was the drummer for Steel Eye Span right before this and would go on to be a drummer for Cat Stevens, Jethro Tull, and a later incarnation of Fairport Convention. Oh, he was he was right in the thick of it with these kinds of bands. Yeah. Yeah, and they also had someone named Stan Lee play pedal steel and bass on one track. I'm guessing not the Marvel Comics founder. Yeah, and I, it was hard for me to discern if there's just not much information about this person or if it's all being drowned out by the comic comic book maker. That could be the case. So, yeah, this was their most commercially successful album and their last critically acclaimed album before they broke up in 1974. Both Mike and Robin went on to record a bunch of solo albums. Probably most one of the most interesting folklore <laughs> facts of this band is Licorice disappeared in 1987, yeah. I was reading. Yeah, in the Arizona desert. Yeah, she was hitchhiking in the Arizona desert. I started to go down this rabbit hole a little bit, and there were people that said... Her sister claimed to have talked to her in 1990. And then there's just a lot of theories out there of anywhere from like she died in the desert to she's living in California somewhere and just wants like privacy and doesn't want to be famous to Scientology potentially coming after her for leaving the the fold there's inter- yeah there's internet rabbit holes that you can go down into for days on licorice mckechnie we'll just leave it at that if you want to explore more <laughs> yeah feel free <laughs> yep currently the the only member who we know has passed is clive palmer the one of the original three passed in 2014 and the rest of them are still out there it looked like they aren't as active making music these days, but they're also like late seventies, early eighties at this point. So yeah. yeah, there have been some the band members getting together and performing here and there over the years. I don't I'm not sure if there's ever been an official incredible string band reunion or not. I think I read there was one in the nineties at one point. Yeah. But it was fairly short lived. Yeah. But I didn't write down the details yeah. on that. Yeah, there's definitely a, a rabid following a small but rabid following, though. Yeah. Well, Sean. Jeremy. Do you have some records for these rabid followers who need more? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got a few things. I got uh, some some records from right around this time period, as I like to do, with a similar sound. One of them's a band that we've featured before, Matthew's Southern Comfort, later that same year from 1970. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a a great one. We of course featured the self-titled Matthews Southern Comfort record on the podcast, but I got that later that same year album after the fact, and had almost wished I had featured that one instead. Yeah, it's a good one, and it can be found a little more commonly, even I would say. Yeah, probably just a little bit easier. But yeah, those those records and then the Ian Matthews solo records, they're all out there. 
Next up is a record that's a little more in the traditional folk, but has some psychedelic leanings as well. Brewer and Shipley shake off the demon from 1971. I know that previous guest of the show, Dustin Krasadovich, is a big fan of that record. I think we maybe even promised him on the Christofferson episode to bring him back and talk about Brewer and Shipley at some point. Stay tuned. Coming soon. And last up is a record that we've featured that I've recommended a couple times, I think. Also came out in 1971. Jimmy Spheris, Isle of You. God, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> How could I not? Our first episode. Yep. Our most recommended album, because once again, Jeremy called me out and recommending it too many times, and now I am going to lean in even heavier on recommending <laughs> that album for the rest of time. That's fair for this album, though. It's a pretty, pretty similar thing, I'd say. Apt. Yeah, yeah. psychedelic folk coming out in the year 1971 it's uh it's a fair recommendation not fair port oh <laughs> peter i will add one more on sean and it's one that you introduced me to please do it's and it's from 1971 just like this record were and, and all of your features were all of your suggestions were 1971 right uh the matthew southern comforter is from 1970 i thought it was 71 and then i realized that my copy is from 1971 but initially it came out in 70 Ah, well, close enough for jazz yeah. or, or for psychedelic folk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the uh, It's actually the Mike Heron solo album. Mike Heron from the Incredible String Band, his 1971 solo debut, Smiling Men with Bad Reputations. You sent that to me. Yeah, and I, I believe when I picked that out for you, I didn't necessarily even realize the connection at first. It just was like, oh, this is a record Peter would like. Yeah, and I do, and and it's it's good. It's it's different from the Incredible String Band. He has a whole slew of guests on there: John Cale, Richard Thompson, Steve Winwood, Pete Townsend, Keith Moon, Ronnie Lane, Elton John, Jimmy Page, and that's wow. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's just the top of the list. <laughs> yeah, jeez. So that one's really cool. Definitely recommend picking that up if you come across it. Cool. Well, I want to take us out today on the song Red Hair, and I just picked it because I like it. This is also a Mike Heron song, correct? Correct. And I did want to leave us on a, a quote I saw from music critic Robert Kriska, who <laughs> I think summed up feelings I kind of have about this band. He said... Way back in the 1960s, I was trying to figure out whether these acoustic Scots were magic or bullshit and concluded they were both. <laughs> you know, as as uh, someone who admires and loves this band, I think, and, and Chris Gow, can, he can sometimes rub me the wrong way. Yeah. But that's accurate. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm not the biggest fan either, but... Uh, I feel like he captured a thing there with that quote. Yeah. Well, perfect. We do want to just remind our listeners that you can check out the Patreon. If you like what you hear and want more, go over to patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast, pledge your support, get some cool bonus content in return. Please follow us on our social media, Instagram at I'd buy that podcast, Facebook search. I'd buy that for a dollar. We also have a Facebook group, the I'd buy that for a dollar Facebook group where you can share your finds out there in the bins with our ever growing little community around this podcast. It's really cool to always see what people are finding and spinning in the I'd buy that for a dollar Facebook group. This has been a fun episode. Thank you for bringing this band, Jeremy. I, this album was new to me, so I need to go find my own copy now and get ever that much closer to completing my incredible string band discography in my collection. Well, thank you for not being too sore about it, Peter. No, I'm really not. Because I probably would have tried to do like a three-part episode or something yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> so, yeah, this uh, this band, once you get into them, once you find it, once it clicks, it, 
you can just keep coming back to them. They have a lot to offer. They were only together for about a decade and put out a lot of material in that time. Yeah, I think they had 14 albums in total. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it's like multiple a year for a few years they were doing. Yeah. Peter, your assignment now is to steal an episode from Jeremy. You got to find one of his favorite groups and get to it before he does. Okay. Yeah. When he uh, when he goes in the kitchen, I'm going to rifle through his collection and find what he has the most of. <laughs> yeah. Good luck finding a Destroyer album. You can. I know. That's that's what I'm going to have to do. Find a way to talk about Destroyer. Or the Mountain Goats or some crap yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I feel like I already did that by bringing Taylor on to talk the roaches. He just hadn't found the roaches yet. Ah, true. <laughs> I think you definitely, if you if they had been on your radar, you would have gotten to them much earlier. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm Sean Hartman. And this last song is Red Hair, Side B, Track 2. Stepping out of the gray day, she came, her red hair. Falling like the sky Love held them there In that moment with the 